0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: Growing up in a small town in Maine, you know, we didn't have a lot to choose from. You would go to the supermarket and it was pretty small or you'd go to the movie theater and there were three options and that was it. That's, yeah. We had cable, I think we had like 23 channels or something when I was a kid. And now of course we live in a world in which not only do we have unlimited options in Netflix and if we wanna stream television, but also in the way we live our lives you can go anywhere you want. If you jump on a plane, you can study anything you want on the internet. we're so mobile and we're so um, exposed to so many things that we have become trapped by the amount of variety in our lives. And that's where we end up. Even in the example, I give Tinder, you carry around in your pocket a thousand potential matches, more than a thousand actually. And so how do you settle on just one? And that bleeds into every aspect of our lives. And it's a very difficult way to live life. Not only is it bad for you, but it's bad for all the people around you who are just waiting for you to make a decision.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Patrick, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. It's great to be here. Yeah so we actually have you back here uh for a second time because um we had you here when you wrote your previous book The 10% Entrepreneur like which was hands down one of my favorite books I've read uh over the last 10 years the, as I was saying to you before we hit record, that concept of ownership resonated with me so much that I've been really, really hammering people on the importance of ownership of your content, uh, your audience. I mean, so much so that I'm like trying to convince my roommate to stop using Facebook to build his audience. You know, I'm saying, "Look, you know, the moment the landlord decides to change his mind, like AKA the algorithm, you're fucked." Um, so, you know, pardon my French, but. Uh, <laughs> Given the subject matter of this new book, I thought I would start with a question that i don 't believe i 've asked you, and that is what social group were you a part of in high school, and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you 've made throughout your life and your career?
1: I love that question I never had it it 's such a smart one uh, so I think the one i 'm going to be i 'm going to admit something that 's incredibly nerdy, but you know we 're all friends here. I was the the drum major of the marching band <laughs> well, guess what I was a tuba player in the no marching way. Band. oh man it 's yeah. heavy that 's heavy. I played trombone so yeah, I, I conducted the marching band, and I was I loved it. It was. It was. We were. We were you know, small. Actually, our little marching band was probably like twenty five people, and I, I cared about it so much. It was, you know, this. I I really wanted to be um, the state champion drum major, which I was able to achieve at uh, at the end of the season. But our little band wasn't wasn't so good, and people wouldn't show up. To, I would literally pick up five people before rehearsals to make sure they showed up because it just. <laughs> Cared so much, and then actually in the middle of the season, I was actually fired for insubordination by the by the band director, and I managed to rally the band around me and get reinstated. So, <laughs> so it was a very dramatic experience. And what it, I think it learned was uh, number one, leadership, but number two, you know, I, I got fired because I was insubordinate. So I learned how maybe to express myself in a way that I wouldn't get fired in the future. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I was kicked out of band my senior year in high school as well. Wow, we have so much in common that I didn't even know about. <laughs> Talk about this <laughs> offline. Uh, yeah, so leadership and, you know, sort of inspiration. But I, I think the other fat thing that's fascinating to me is that, you know, like I, I went from like a 400-person marching band to a 200-person marching band. I mean, a 25-person marching band, that's a whole different social dynamic. Uh, what did you learn from navigating such a small town environment? Because I know that you referenced that in the book, which we'll get into, Um, and how did that affect um you know your social interactions your ability to build relationships when you went out into the world? Like what did you learn about that from being in such a small town environment?
1: Yeah, you know I think it's it's interesting because I come from this little town of 20,000 people where there wasn't a lot to do. And so marching band was I had unlimited time to devote to it because that's kind of like I did that and I did a bunch of other clubs. I was I was even in high school in everything doing president of the National Honor Society and the marching band and the jazz band and the this and the that. Um, so I was always very, very sort of social and extroverted, but I think what, what was interesting as I think back to it was that that was unusual. And in fact, I think it made me a bit of a target because people didn't like that. And they were like, well oh, he, you know, why is he doing all these things? And why does he want to be the president of that or this? And, and I think there was a little bit of a, a resentment towards that. It, like the classical thing about like the, the nerd and the, and the, and the, and the jock and the, and the, the, kind of the tough kid and, you know, everybody's mean to each other and we didn't call it bullying, but that's kind of what it was. And so I think what happened was when I went out into the wider world and went to college and found that there were a lot more people that I had a lot more in common with, it just made me feel a lot more confident in who I was, right? Because I think in high school, I felt like everybody judged me and that they thought I was, you know, a nerd and 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 I, that that the things i wanted to do were bad and stuff like that and now i realize okay like actually the things that i wanted to do in high school that other people looked down on actually are the things that make you more <laughs> successful when you go out into the wider world
0: yeah well i think it's interesting that you participated in so many things and you know we live in this sort of uh you know i i don't remember what book it was that i was reading very recently about how parents have overscheduled their children's lives uh, with the sort of activities and stuff to help them get into college, which I think is, is interesting considering we're about to, you know, talk about this whole idea of FOMO. And, you know, I was, I was pleasantly surprised to find that you quite literally coined the word FOMO. I, I didn't had no idea, <laughs> but, um, I mean, it, it seems like that that was there even in high school in some way to participate in all these activities. Uh, I mean, do you think that's what drove some of it?
1: I think it is partially that I, I, as I mentioned, I grew up in a small town where there wasn 't a lot going on and where it was life was quite simple, and you know we were very middle class, our whole town, including my family, so it wasn 't that I was jetting off to Paris for my holidays and things like that. However, I had a plan I came into high school. And I literally, I remember I would, every year they would put the top 10 students in our high school in the newspaper and they would list all the activities. And I took note of that. I studied it like other people study baseball stats. And so when I entered my, my freshman year of high school, I told myself, I'm going to do every club I can to the point where they can't even fit the number of clubs i did into that box in the in the yearbook under my picture and that's exactly what i did because i believe that would be my way to get into a good college and to all this other stuff so i mean if you look back at it it's I, I remind myself a lot of the tracy flick from that that book in the movie election <laughs> because yeah. i was so in, intense i used to actually wear a blazer to high school at a public high school in maine there's a reason why people made fun of me but Whatever. i just I, I had a plan and so i was very leisure focused and part of that was definitely wanting to do everything thing. And I think that has been in my DNA ever since. And, and, you know, we'll talk about this in more detail, but, but learning how to manage that and to actually choose things more thoughtfully has been one of the biggest things I've had to focus on as an adult. Yeah.
0: Well, it's – yeah, I'd imagine. I mean, when I read the book, I thought to myself, wow, like this is a problem that we're all dealing with. Uh, But before we get that, part of what I want to, you know, explore with you is this is a pretty drastic transition from your previous book, Uh, you know, The 10% Entrepreneur. And we'll link up the other episode for people listening. Uh, Because, I mean, that book was all about, you know, investing, ownership, entrepreneurship. um, And there are elements of that in this. But this is a pretty drastic shift because this feels much more like a social science book than an entrepreneurship book. So what what prompted your exploration of this subject of all the things that you could do?
1: You're so right. And it, it was not the plan, by the way. So I wrote The 10% Entrepreneur, which is a book about how to be an entrepreneur without quitting your day a job. And I did that based on my own experience. And then I published the book and I traveled around the world. It ended up coming out in like 12 languages. And I did book tour in more than 20 countries, everywhere from, from Myanmar to Cote d'Ivoire to Brazil to Mexico. So it was a really fascinating experience to travel around and, and talk to people about The 10% an entrepreneur and to be part of what I consider to be a movement um, that I that I believe in. And so I had no intention to write a book about FOMO ever. But what happened was, and this was my one of my big lessons from this experience, was everywhere I went, I would give talks and, and I would talk to pretty big groups of people and different, as I mentioned, all over the place. And people loved the concept and it resonated with them. But they only wanted to take the selfies because I had invented the word FOMO. So I'd always mention in, in the beginning about FOMO and, and I linked FOMO to the idea of entrepreneurship and that we all have entrepreneurship FOMO. And that's why 10% entrepreneurship is a great solution to that. And so people would line up and they would say, Oh, my friend has FOMO. Can you take a picture with me? And I thought well, that's very really interesting that. I've just talked for an hour about entrepreneurship, but the thing that people connect with emotionally with me is the FOMO. And so as I did sort of realize that, I thought to myself, there may be a book in this. And so I started toying with that idea and working on a book proposal. And then I decided to start a podcast and I had this kind of big decision to make. Is it going to be the 10% Entrepreneur podcast or am I going to do something around FOMO? And I decided, listen... There is FOMO so broad in the way the 10% entrepreneur is, is a, it's a bit more of a niche play and, and the people who will read that book, it's a smaller sub- subset of, of population. FOMO is something that we all feel. It's a really widespread and it's very global. Why don't I go with that idea? And I created this podcast called FOMO Sapiens and then, I realized there was an audience for that, and so I thought, you know, maybe I can dig into this. And so I started gathering more information and, and realizing that there was a book that I could write. And so that's that was the transition, but it was at the end of the day, it came from listening to the audience and learning yeah. what their interest was. And so I was completely surprised.
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, it's funny because I mean, even if you talk to, to you know somebody like Ryan Holiday, who is like probably the most prolific author that I know... Uh, one of the things he said is often, you know, his books are basically, you know, an expansion on something he wrote in one of his previous books mm-hmm. uh, and just, you know, seriously expanded. But the thing you say when you open the book is that when you treat your life as a Tinder feed, swiping with reckless abandon without ever committing to any of the potential options, you turn everything around you from opportunities to individuals into commodities. You also send a clear and unambiguous message to everyone else you
1: are the holdout. How did we get here? oh boy well i 'll tell you it's that is 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 a creation of our modern lives so you 're describing right there phobo or fear of a better option, the idea we don 't commit to anything and there are of course elements of this in being human right hum- Humankind has always been well aware of wo- that there are other options out there that might be better for you, and maybe you should wait for something to come along and so you know even even our earliest ancestors. Uh, were indecisive at times of course because that's the nature of being a human being what has changed and what has made this phenomenon something that's widespread and and really damaging is technology it's the fact that as I mentioned you know growing up in a small town of maine you know we didn't have a lot to choose from you would go to the supermarket and it was pretty small or you'd go to um, the movie theater and there were three options and that was it That's, we had cable. I think we had like, you know, 23 channels or something when I was a kid. And now, of course, we live in a scenario in a world in which not only do we have unlimited options and Netflix and if we want to stream television, but also in the way we live our lives. You can go anywhere you want for pretty, for, for pretty, pretty low price. If you if you jump on a plane, um, you can uh, study anything you want on the internet. There are jobs all over the place, and we're so mobile and we're so um, exposed to so many things yeah. that we have become uh, sort of trapped by the amount of variety in our lives, and that's where we we end up. Even in the example I give, Tinder dating. You carry around in your pocket a thousand potential matches, more than a thousand actually. And so how do you settle on just one? And that bleeds into every aspect of our lives. And it's a very difficult way to live life. Not only is it bad for you, but it's bad for all the people around you who are just waiting for you to make a decision.
0: I think even culturally, I mean, dating is such a a great example. It's like, this is so deeply embedded in our culture now that I wonder if there's even a way out of it. But the two things you mentioned are the role of perception and inclusion. And you say that that your impression of something's intrinsic value is based on all kinds of internal and external cues, things like friends, family, and social media influencers, past experiences and interests or passions. And if you think about Tinder in general, I think that, you know, like, I think it's pretty common practice among single guys. If you match with a really attractive girl, people like, Oh man, check out this girl I matched with. She's super hot, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is the, you know, sort of friends opinions. But, um, Given that there are all these things biasing our perceptions, you know, these, these things that create cognitive biases, is there
1: a way that we can mitigate them? Most definitely. So yeah. th- that's the thing about this is that part of the solution to this problem is number one, recognizing that it exists in the first place. So the word FOMO, people know what that is. It's in the dictionary and which is insane to me, but you know, that is a, that is a, a, a behavior that we all see and we know how to name. Fobo fear of a better option, which is what we were talking about in terms of this inability to decide that's something that didn't hasn't really had a name, even though I invented them the same day the same time, it never really got sort of the currency that FOMO did. And so I think the the first step is to just recognize that that is a behavior and, and be able to put a name to it. But second of all, is there's really clear strategies around that. Because when you think about Phobo, Phobo is, is, a, is a combination of two things. It's a combination of number one, maximization, thinking that you can always find something better out there. And number two, it's, it's about a uh, option value and wanting to keep your options open for as long as possible without making a decision you know so you have ultimate flexibility and so what I, what I advise people to do and it's 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 a strategy that about around decision making that that you actually systematically go through your options and then in a very sort of thoughtful way evaluate them and then always uh, when you when you choose uh, sort you compare them one by one you choose the better each time mm-hmm. you do a comparison you throw the other one away forever and you don't go back to it because the problem here is that when we do not eliminate options, we avoid the very necessary part of decision-making, which is letting go of what we can't have. And so that's a really fundamental part of how you get past this indecision. Yeah.
0: Well, I want to come back to all of that, and we'll we'll actually run it through uh, a couple of practical examples because several came to my mind when I was going mm-hmm. through this. But one of the other things you talked about in the, this whole idea of the role of perception and inclusion is what you call the asymmetry of information. Uh, you know, this disconnect between what we think you know, or hope that we'll get and what we actually get. Um, what is you know? I mean, obviously that, that's kind of how you define it. Like, how does asymmetry of information play out in our lives?
1: The very simple example, which is, which is, th- th- it sounds trivial, but, but you can then expand this into a wider series of, of, uh, of s- scenarios in your life is you go on a Facebook or or you go on an Instagram and you see that picture of your friend with his beautiful family and they're at their beautiful uh, villa on their vacation in Tuscany. And the light is perfect and it just, you're sitting at home in your underwear watching something on television and you think to yourself like, wow, my life is just not stacking up. Now, what you don't see, of course, is the fact that there's a gazillion filters on that picture that everybody got in a fight two seconds after that, you know, none of that is real, that it's all produced. But the fact that you don't know is a result of an asymmetry of information. If you had perfect information about all of the things that provoke feelings of FOMO, you would not have phone because you'd know, okay, either I should do that or I shouldn't, but either, you know, this is worth my thinking about or it's not. And so the fact that we, in our minds are creating all these scenarios and whether it's the job that you see, you, you see the listing for, or it's that life that you didn't leave, or it's the person you dated was married to somebody else. When we yearn for the things that we don't have, but we are the ones who are imbuing them with the perfection um, when that in real life, they may not ever live up to it. We are feeling the information asymmetry that exists with lots of things that aren't productive for us. And so that is a big, a big factor here as well is really thinking carefully, is this even real? And I think a lot mm-hmm. of times we don't do that because we're so used to seeing idealized images everywhere um, that we're, that we're not as critical as we need to be.
0: Well, it's funny because you literally mentioned that you said people have become experts at shaping their digital personas for maximum likes and they'll go out of their way to cultivate the perfect image. And it made me think of something that I told Daniela Port when I was interviewing her for a uh, creative lives I said, basically what this does is cause us to confuse attention with affection. Um, and you know, I, I wonder if, if, you know, like obviously billions of people use these products around the world. We know that their impact has had a lot of negative consequences. And now we're in a situation where they're literally, in a lot of ways, are only access to other people. Uh, so how do you navigate this like asymmetry of information uh, and then you know these three forces that you talk about, relentless access to information, extreme inc- interconnectivity, and reference anxiety in the midst of something like what we're dealing with now, where technology is really our primary way to actually have some semblance of connection with other humans?
1: I mean, it's, this is where, where it gets really really tricky, right? Because you're so no. right. <laughs> you can't leave your apartment if you're in, in a self-quarantine, for example. And so you turn immediately to social media. And in fact, if you look at the numbers uh, around social media use right now – it's way up, way, way up. You're seeing massive, massive use because all the people who said no screens, no screens, all of a sudden, if you only have a screen to connect with people, you are, uh, you are, you got to sort of change your, uh, your priorities. And so yeah. number one, I think there is the necessity to to limit your use of these things. And 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 basically what I have done personally is I just, I unfollow a lot of people. If I don't feel good about what I see, if it provokes in me a bad feeling, even if the other person didn't mean for it to do that, I simply unfollow those people. Number two is um, I spend a lot of time thinking about how can I use my time in ways that is actually counteracting that? And so one one great example is uh, mindfulness. And mindfulness is this buzzword that everybody uses. And and I think it's oftentimes uh, the perception of what that means is is really, um, it's really sort of been shaped and altered. And and a lot of people don't sort of, have a clear view of what that means. It sounds very freaky deaky or, or something that's for hippies and, and, and folks like that. But for me, what that means is basically taking time each day to spend time away from the screens. I meditate, other people could take a walk, but just spending time away from the fictional world that exists in the apps and the screens and living in the real world where everything is physical and you can actually observe things and see what their true nature is. It's very helpful because what happens when you, when you look at social media and you, you, you idealize or project things upon these images is that you are not living in the real world. You are in fact creating a bunch of fictional things that are outside of the real world. And you need to pull yourself back to reality because that difference between what's real and what's in your mind—that's where the pathology begins. Uh, that's yeah. where you're causing damage to yourself. And so, if you can spend time—and whether it's talking to people in real life, and you know, on a, on a Zoom call or on the phone, or interacting with people or just being in nature where things are what they what they seem to be uh that helps you to then mitigate all of this fantasy world that you're creating in your head when you're looking at the apps yeah
0: well it's you know it reminds me of of, uh the story that i'd showed on another podcast where i was interviewed Um, we had a guest named alex benign here i think probably last year or the year before wrote this amazing book called the third door um, ended up interviewing everybody from Jessica Alba to Bill Gates, and the book became you know a bestseller, sold tens of thousands of copies. I mean, if you looked at his Facebook feed, it was pretty much that. But one of the things that he talked about with me was the fact that his dad had also died that year um, that the book came out. And what, what struck me about that is I think if you were to solely look at the feed, you would think, oh, Alex must have this amazing life, but I'm willing to bet money. And I think I would feel the same way that he wouldn't trade one of those extra book sales if it... Meant, you know, he got more time with his dad.
1: Yeah, it's funny you say that because I went to a book party that he did in New York. And I remember at the time, you know, he's so confident. And his uh, his stories are so insane that I felt sort of like, man, this guy like, wow, what am am I doing wrong? Like, he's got this crazy life, and like, what am I? And and I didn't know the 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 fact about his dad, but it's it's insane how yes, we see people like an Alex, who is a tremendous guy, by the way, and his his book's great, I'm sure, and and his stories are amazing. But when you peel back the cover, we're all multidimensional, and you know, we feel pain, and even if you're out there. Doing your business and and pushing forward, um we have this tendency to want to put our best foot forward online, right? And that is that's that's you know very human.
0: Do you think that we'll come out of this better off uh than we were before? This is something I was talking to somebody about the other day. Uh, you know, it's a conversation that's caught a lot of people recently is I mean, you and I are probably close in age just based on on some of the things you've told me. But uh, you know, I said like I remember when I was in high school, the future of the f- telephone was when you could see the other person's face on the other end of the phone. It was just this idea that like that was some back to the future stuff. And that capability has been around for more than ten years, and we almost never use it. Um but we have recently. And what's interesting is even in in my neighborhood, like there are people sitting out in their driveway yesterday. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, like one of our neighbors came and brought us a bottle of wine to welcome us to the neighborhood. And, and like part of me wonders if any of this would have actually happened if we weren't in the situation we were in. Like I suddenly realized it's like, wow, people have taken this ability to, to connect for granted. Um, but I think that I'm seeing some very beautiful things come out of this as well uh, in terms of how we're using technology. And I wonder, based on having written this book, what you think about that?
1: So here's how I think about it, because I've spent a lot a lot of time, as you can imagine, I'm in quarantine. I have plenty of time to think about, uh, not quarantine, but self-isolation, a lot of time to think about how this really plays out in the age of COVID. And I think there there is an initial true benefit, which is that when we step back, we, in a sense, this whole f- sort of phenomenon can, in, in a sense, be a cure for some of our FOMO, as it were, because we're forced to step back. You simply can't do the thing. You can't go on the vacation to Hawaii that your friend went on because nobody's flying there right now, right? So you are forced to reckon with yourself. And I think there is a beauty to that because when we slow down, we do the things that maybe we wished. In our heart of hearts, we, we, we wanted to do, but we didn't do because we were so busy running around doing all kinds of other things. So whether it's reading that book or cross stitching, somebody told me they're doing cross stitching, all these things that we never had time for before that are things that we love in our heart of hearts. So I do think there's a beauty to that that we should appreciate. I also feel though, after a month or two of this, and when I'm coming into, you know, the end of the first month, there is a deep sense of mourning for the life the simple things of the life that we once led, where we could connect with people in different ways and we could go to restaurants. I mean, crazy things that are, <laughs> that are, that are not possible right now. And I think that, um, that is a, that's a big negative because, uh, I think right now, uh, at least in the earlier stages of, of, this new transition to what we're going to, um, We've been focused simply on a sort of siege mentality and like just getting through. But then there's going to be a recognition that some things will not come back or some things will have changed in ways that we don't like. And I think there'll be a sense of mourning there. And I also think uh, one thing that that maybe people don't know is that I came up with the idea of FOMO really in the aftermath and as a result of having lived in new york city during 911 and i i was there living in lower manhattan and i it was profoundly affected it was a sh- it's it feels very similar actually to what's going on right now and it it just changed me because after that i thought life is very short you must live every moment you must take every opportunity and do everything you can and i do think that we will see some of that as well that people are going to their reaction is going to be like we have one life to live let's live it to the fullest and i actually don't think that's a bad thing at all even though it may be a massive time of fomo because when you have fomo that also means that there is something to miss out on and to tell you the truth right now, that I, I, I long for uh, things to miss out on because right now it feels like there is not that much to miss out on.
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh.
1: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
2: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Well, there's one other component that uh, I figure you, of all people, probably would be somebody very interesting to talk to this about. You know, you talk about the billion-dollar business of FOMO, and you say that when it's applied to commerce, it's used to achieve a singular goal—to entice you to do something you wouldn't do or delay without external stimuli. And then you talk about the role of perception and aspirational FOMO and inclusion in herd FOMO. Given what is going on in the economy, where is the sort of ethical line about all of this? Because I mean, you know, like you said, it's a billion-dollar business. I mean. Internet marketers make fortunes off of this. I know this because I get those emails.
1: Yeah, I get those emails too. The amount of emails that I get telling me, to trying to sell me masks, for example, um, from these, I mean, I have no idea who these people are. They seem completely unreputable. But, but the amount of, uh, let's not even talk about reputable people. Let's just talk about yeah. these, these sort of fly-by-night people who are trying to uh, make money off of a crisis. And make money off of our true fear—that's completely outrageous and, and and unethical. And I think there are there's room for people in the system who are creating value by brokering and providing necessary services. But beyond that, anybody who's trying to capitalize on your fear to make money off of you—that uh, yeah, is, first of all, it's not sustainable because you know we right. you can't live in fear forever. And number two, it's just uh, it's not a very good thing. And so I think there the, the traditional FOMO marketing is sort of like don't miss out on. Your chance to get the new Apple iPhone. Wait in line and buy it. That kind of stuff now seems pretty, pretty mild compared to you see people that that literally you are you are using their fear that they could become sick to get them yeah. to do things. On the other side, I would say that there is an element to um, how how people are being instructed by by government to behave. For example, getting mm-hmm. people to self isolate. You've got to really frighten them and give them a fear that if they don't stay home and they leave their home that they will they potentially put themselves in danger and so there is there's also a powerful positive use of this in terms of crowd control um but it is incredible to me when you when I, I mean I did it too. I bought all this toilet paper that I I right. don't think I, I needed to do that, and yeah. and it was just because I saw images online of people in other countries buying tons of toilet paper. And so it's crazy how even <laughs> I'm supposed to know better. I totally fell for the trap.
0: Yeah. Well, I wonder. You know, somebody who has invested in companies and seen people accumulate significant amounts of wealth. One of the things I kind of wonder when we get to the point where, you know, you have to do a $2 trillion stimulus. And I jokingly said, I was like, my second grade math seems better than Steve Mnuchin's treasury math. But then again, I'm not running the treasury department. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm a bullshit economist with a 2.97 GPA in economics from Berkeley. But the question I guess I have for you is, do you think that we've maximized self-interest to the point of diminishing returns? And like, we'll come out of this with a very different consciousness about all of this?
1: I do, and I I was on a call the other day, which was super interesting. With uh, I'm on a board of a company that has a bunch of prominent people, and like former world leaders and things like that. And there was a gentleman on the call who had been a cabinet member in the United States um, a cabinet, and he said that the the era of Reaganism and Thatcher Thatcherite thinking is over. And in other words, that sort of capitalism as the only solution and let the free market reign kind of thinking right now, I think people are going to question it. It's not just going to be the people who voted for Bernie Sanders. It's going to be a large swath of society because number one, we see that government, um, you know, (laughs) that the government that we have today uh, has been cut to the point, at least in certain sections, that they can't even provide simple things that we need, and so there has been a this quote unquote the the free market will will allocate things efficiently it hasn't worked uh, at all. And number two, I think that there's going to be so much corruption. Mm-hmm. In, in in how all this whole stimulus is is laid handed out to the private sector i mean the amount of lobbying that's gone on in washington yeah. is crazy and so you can just look it up google it because it's it's out there and i think that as a result people are going to say we need government uh to be re- more responsive and we need a, a government that can provide services to us and listen I, I i don't sort of have a dog in this race yet because frankly right. i I I tend to come from more of a private sector thinking. But what has been clear here is that the system as it exists today is very, very deficient. Yeah.
0: Well, and that, that was the that was why I figured you of all people as an investor would have a perspective on this. So let, let's actually go into this entire framework for making decisions because, you know, it was one of the more complex decision making frameworks I'd seen. And then I thought, okay, let's run this through a real example because you talk about stakes, you know, high stakes, low stakes, and no stakes decisions, and then you basically give us a framework for eliminating information asymmetry. So let's take. A stupidly simple example and run it through this framework. Um, and then let's do a high stakes decision as well. So I'll give you an example. I just moved to a new apartment. I needed some sh- like floating shelves for hanging them on my desk because all my audio equipment is cluttering my desk. And I realized after reading your book, I was like, wow, this is a copious waste of time looking at all these parking <laughs> options. So I was like, okay, that's the thing I'm going to ask Patrick about because I know I'm not alone. People do this all the time. They go to Amazon and for like a $15 purchase, they spend hours like comparing various options. So, how can we take this whole framework um, in which you talk about keeping an open mind, knowing what matters, relying on facts, and then formulating questions? You know, criteria data. I mean, you know the framework. So I'll have you walk us through it. Sure. Just, let's use an Amazon purchase as the example.
1: Yeah, this is a great. And it's so funny because I I actually have met. Um, there's a company that I that I heard about that actually reached out to me because their job is to help you make better decisions basically by helping you answer some questions. It's called Zuvu, Z-O-O-V-U. So they, they actually work with Amazon and and they ask you some questions and then they limit your options to like one, uh, which is kind of cool. (laughs) That's cool. So I don't think they have it for floating shelves, but they have it for things like television and, and, um, And so that's one thing to think about, but, but let me, let me help you out. So, so there are three types of decisions that we make in life, what I call no stakes, low stakes, and high stakes. So high stakes are things that will have an impact in your life in a year. Okay. they are things that, you know, you really want to think through carefully. Low stakes are things that you probably won't remember making the decision in about a month. Okay. So Mm -hmm. it's like, which printer should I buy? Which floating shelves should I buy? That's kind of, I'd say yours isn't kind of a low stakes. And then the third is the no stakes. And that's literally something you won't remember in a couple of days. And that is something like, you know, what should I have for lunch? Mm -hmm. But what's crazy is that we can spend crazy amounts of time on low stakes and no stakes decisions. I mean, I, the reason why (laughs) I came up with this framework actually is, is because when I was in college, I would, spend crazy amounts of time asking myself things like, you know, should I go to the library at two or at four? I mean, I I don't, it didn't really matter, but I would, I would just spin my wheels on that. And so basically what I tell you to do in the book and what I do, this is my own cooking that I eat is when it comes to no stakes decisions, should I go for a run today? I simply, if I, if, if I'm indifferent, you know, because the reality is most of these small decisions we make, Infl- you know right away it's reflexively we don't have to think much about it but when you're stuck on something that trivial uh, I outsource it to my watch so what I actually do is I say it's a yes or no decision I look um, down at my watch if the if the second hand is on the left side that's yes if it's on the right side it's no decision is made and I do that all the time uh, red white, or red wine or white wine, chicken or fish, all those sorts of things. The smaller decision, which is what you're talking about here, is where you're trying to buy a certain item on, say, Amazon, like these floating shelves, and maybe you've cut a couple of different options, but you're stuck. Okay. You just, for some reason, you cannot decide. Well, you're not going to, you could ask your watch, and that's certainly one way to do it. But what I would recommend here is you simply uh, engage with somebody else. So what I'd like to do is ask somebody to make the decision for me. So like, if you want to, you can email me the options you're choosing from, and I'll choose for you. And by the way, you are indifferent at this point. So if I choose one set and then you hate them, then, you know, that also tells you something, but it should be basically at the point where you can't decide because they all look the same to you. right? So
0: let's, let's look at that same thing uh, in terms of another example. I think everybody deals with, I think I spend more time looking for things to watch on Netflix than I actually do watching things on Netflix until I get to the point where I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go back and watch something I've already seen.
1: Oh Yeah. It's the same thing. I, I agree. Netflix is, is, is particularly difficult. And listen, I mean, I've been spending a lot of time watching Netflix and I struggle. So the, there you can choose. A, I, number one is I actually, I, I use the low stakes decision here, which is I actually just ask somebody what else to watch. I have a friend and I say, what should I watch tonight? And she tells me, but if you wanted to do the no stakes, what you could do is uh, maybe if you don't want to do ask the watch, uh, you could, you could, you could take your watch and instead of having it in two quadrants, divide it into four, find four potential shows, your watch, assign each of them a quadrant, look at your watch and start the show. Okay, great. I love that. Well,
0: let's talk about high stakes decisions. I mean, high stakes decisions, Samir, are things that you're going to do with your business, uh, you know, potentially who you're going to marry. So <clears throat> let's take the business example. I mean, uh, every one of us right now feels as though we're making very high stakes decisions with our business. So for example, you know, where we're going to allocate resources, you know, something like, okay, where could I potentially spend, you know, cut spending or something like that. Can you walk us through, you know, sort of the framework that you use as an investor? You know, Cause you talk about questions, criteria, data, um writing it down in preliminary judgments
1: yeah so so there are two different scenarios one's for fomo cuz remember fomo is about like i want to do everything all the time and i have to like focus on one thing. And the other is phobo, which is sort of this idea that I have options, a bunch of options that I could potentially choose, but I'm unwilling to choose one because I'm hoping something better will come along and I want to maximize my outcome. So for the the options that we have today around a business, for example, I think it's really that would fall much more into the FOMO space. So excuse me, the FOBO space, which is kind of analysis paralysis. It's like, okay, I need to make a decision now um, I've got three employees and I have to decide which of them I'm going to lay off, right? And so, listen, it's not a pleasant decision, but you have options in front of you. You just can't decide. And so, there's two elements to that. Uh, What's happening when you're stuck with this decision is, number one, um, you're trying to find the absolutely perfect outcome. And because we can never know what the perfect outcome is because of information asymmetry, uh, it can be tempting to sort of keep waiting and hoping, ah, things will get better, you know, maybe I won't have to do this, and so I should wait, 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 wait. Reality is, of course, we know that you have to be decisive right now, especially in a time of crisis. Second thing is that by, you're waiting as long as possible because we're hoping that things will, will get better. And so that's the issue, right? That's where you're getting stuck. Now, the reality is, as I, and I've done a bunch of research on this. So as I wrote, wrote the book, you know, I'm not a clinical psychologist, but I might as well be by now because I've read everything out there uh, on on these topics. Uh, what I learned in, in reading sort of the, the newest research is that the maximization, wanting to have The best outcome in and of itself isn't actually the problem the problem is the way we make decisions because if you keep going back to the same set of decisions without discarding any that's where you get stuck that's where you get stuck in the feedback loop that's where the pathology is and so what you need to do is find a way to eliminate options to get down to just one and so what you need to do in this situation is number one you need to do your homework. You need to remove as much of the asymmetry of information as possible. So you're going to go through, say you have these three, these three employees and you're trying to decide which one you're going to lay off. You want to understand, okay, what is it each person does? You know, how have they been performing over the years? What is their capacity to move forward? All these are really having the objective assessment of these people and what would happen if you were to lay somebody off and how it would it affect your business? And then, hopefully that will give you and it should do it should give you a basic ability to start uh, figuring out okay what is the, the the what is the the sort of the, the appropriate answer and if you you haven't gotten to the point and you're still stuck then what you want to do is literally take okay uh this is the person that i think uh i should keep compare that to another person you think you should keep you choose the better of the two as the one you should keep right um and then the other one is the person that you would get rid of, and so the idea is you are always choosing the better, and then letting go of the worst. And in doing so, um, you are able to you are feeling like you are getting the better the better outcome for yourself. And when you let go of the worst, they are permanently eliminated. And so that that's the big concept here is that you must to make a decision, you must always permanently get rid of the thing that you cannot have. And so it's a bit of a weird way to think about it because here we're trying to decide who to let go of, so it's kind of. Right upside down, um, and a bit of a trickier example, but, but really at the end of the day, the fundamental shift you're making in your decision-making is that you are not holding on to things you can't have.
0: Right. Well, let me give you an, another example. This is from, uh, my sort of pre applying to business school phase where I was, you know, fired from one last job. And so this is a, this actually, it, you know, speaks to the, the value of having options. Um, because, I'd never been in a situation up until that point in my life where I had two job offers at the same time. And one of them was to go work for this startup in Mountain View where I absolutely loved the team. I loved the boss, but I also knew I was applying to business school. I was like, I'm going to leave. I was like, I don't feel right screwing these guys over. I had another offer in San Francisco where I was like, I don't care about screwing these guys over. So Mm -hmm. I'm willing to take this offer and screw these guys over in June because I don't really like these guys. And what was interesting is the startup in Mountain View that wanted me to drive every day. Kept upping the offer. They would just call back the next day and recruit say, "Have you thought about it?" I was like, "Yeah, I don't know." I'm like, you know, an hour drive. I was like, I've done this commute; it's miserable. The next day, she'd call and offer another 10k. So I actually chose fifteen thousand dollars less for a worse boss um, who almost ended up firing me too. And so, I, you know, like, how do you how do you draw this line between having options? Because I think that for example, even, you know, when it comes to dating or even something as ridiculous as choosing book covers, I would make my publisher give me multiple options because I knew that if you have options, you have discernment. And as a result of discernment, you have better judgment. So let's say dating, I go back to, right. Is that if you're dating one person and they treat you like shit, you don't recognize that, wait a minute, somebody else could treat you better. Um, I, and I'm telling you all this through personal experience, like it's the same situation I've seen, you know, where it's like, wow, I would not have recognized the other person's like, really awful qualities had it not been for the other person you know the better person so where where's the line here like how do you do this without losing your mind
1: yeah it's true well there's a there's a there's a belief out there in our culture that having more options means that we'll make better decisions which is absolutely not true and in fact the data shows that in fact the more options we have If we're not decisive people, if you're really decisive and you have more options and you can just make a decision quickly, then that can be good. But generally what happens is the more options you have, the harder it is for you to actually make a decision. And actually you're less happy with the ultimate outcome because of this regret that I was talking about. You feel a sense of regret at what you you passed up. And so, therefore, people, it's incredible, studies have shown that people who have more options, even though they could actually have chosen an objectively better outcome, enjoy it less because of the regret they feel, right? And so, that's just kind of a great backdrop to understand how we make decisions. Now, what I would recommend and what I think in your decision, it sounds like you made one that you, you felt good about, but injecting structure into how you think about these things is so critical. And so, you know, I just told you this sort of basic strategy for making decisions. But what I add to that actually is I, I write everything down. I create, I think like a, a venture capitalist or like an investor. And I literally write down my rationale because if you can't put your rationale on paper, it really exposes how flawed your thinking is. And so putting something down on paper forces you to reckon with it, to make it real, and it really allows you to make sure that your 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 rationale is strong. And the second thing that I do is I will then show that uh, rationale and actually argue that case to a limited number of people. Again, you don't want to talk to 50 people because then you have you're <laughs> actually like creating way too complicated a process and that yeah. you're working against yourself, but showing it to a limited number of people and getting their feedback makes everything stronger. You expose your weaknesses and, mm-hmm. and it makes it a lot easier to come to the point where the difference between options that maybe before seem pretty similar actually becomes quite clear. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up a limited number of people because I know that, you know,
0: I, and probably plenty of other people have had this tendency of like, all right, let me just solicit, you know, the internet for, mm-hmm. you know, Tons of unsolicited opinions on something in my life that will have no impact on theirs.
1: Yeah, Quora or anything like that. Great for (laughs) uncovering information, right? So getting facts, and facts are important in terms of building your case. But the minute that like the minute I love the people who put on Facebook and I do this too. I'm going to this city. Where should I eat? And then you get fifty different comments. I never even read them because it's Mm -hmm. too intimidating. So you're much better, ask three people. Well,
0: it's funny because I mean, I've gotten even unsolicited dating advice from friends and I've never said this to this friend, you know, who was like, Hey, I'm going to think about being a dating coach. And I'm, my mind I'm thinking, yeah, but you've never had a successful relationship. That would be like hiring a broke person to be my financial advisor. So no,
1: um, thanks. I'll pass. (laughs) That's actually pretty amazing. You know, there's, um, it's, it's those who, who, who can't do shouldn't teach. I think is a great, (laughs) it's a great way to think about that. (laughs) Wow uh,
0: well so now, I mean, have you had this framework blow up in your face ever as an investor? Because I know that not I mean part of investing is is risk
1: oh yeah, and and listen, just because you've made a decision and you've used a strategy doesn't mean you're always going to be right uh, life. is is going to give us unexpected twists and turns. And and certainly with with venture capital, um, people make mistakes all the time. And so what is important to do, and as I mentioned, I I encourage people to write this down, is that you can go back and compare what actually happened with what you thought would happen and learn and improve your process and make better decisions going forward. And that's what VC firms do. As you think about a VC fund, they make an investment. And then every year they do what's called portfolio review, which is they look at what happened and compare it to their original assumptions and say, where can we learn from this? And so I think over time, as we gain life experience and knowledge and as we practice, we Will obviously get better. But that doesn't mean just because we try to uncover information asymmetry, just because we've done the process appropriately, that doesn't mean that we're going to get it right at all. And that's part of the human experience. But the important thing is when you make a decision, you get a chance to actually do something uh, rather than staying at home indecisive. And and that's where you don't want to be.
0: Yeah. Wow. So I have one final question for you, which I know you've heard me ask before. um, And it's how we finish all of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: So I went through this this process myself of figuring out something that was unmistakable for me that only I could do. And I, in my life, I've seen friends build companies and and businesses that are really, really cool. I have contemporaries that I knew from New York, like the the guy who founded Bonobos or another friend of mine started um, the Female Founders Fund. And when I saw these things, I thought, wow, only they could do this. It's so tied to their essence and who they are. And I'll never have that. And then over time, having now written a couple books and, and with FOMO and stuff like that. Like those are very much things that only I could have done. I think, you know, they're very tied into who I am as a human being and, and I imbue them with who I am and my personality. And so they're very tied to to me. And so I've gotten a really good sense of what it means to be unmistakable. And I would say if I were to sort of step back and say, well, what is it? I think it's really, it's, it's knowing really well where, where your personal story aligns with something that you do well and then finding a way to share it with people that in a way that's really genuine. And so whether that is writing a piece of music and being an artist or it's starting a company that solves a problem that you feel passionate about, or it's the restaurant where you're at the front desk every night and people come in and you know your clients, whatever that is to you. I mean, my barista at my local coffee shop, Juno, who's amazing, he knows every client. He knows what their coffee order is every day when they walk in and and he knows about their lives. And like, that's incredible to me. I'm So I think it is that it's injecting the humanity into whatever you're creating and whatever you're putting out into the world. Wow. Amazing. Uh, Where can people find out more about
0: you, your work, uh, the book and everything else that you're up to?
1: Okay. So the best place to go is patrickmcginnis.com. There you can find uh, information about my new book, Fear of Missing Out, Practical Decision-Making in a World of Overwhelming Choice. You can also check out my podcast, FOMO Sapiens. And you can find me on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, Instagram, Patrick J. McGinnis. And on Facebook, it's Patrick McGinnis. Awesome. And for everybody listening,
0: we will wrap the show with that.
2: Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at Oseamalibu.com. That's O S E A MALIBU.com code SUMMER.
0: Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide, it's a deep exploration